What evidence does the special counsel have against Trump? Trump's legal team really wants to know. The lead starts right now. It is a scramble for Trump's lawyers as their client faces a potential third indictment and second federal indictment. What does the special counsel know that Team Trump does not? And how will Donald Trump handle the invitation for him to appear before a grand jury by tomorrow? And a new photo of the American soldier detained in North Korea. Why did he run across the border into the hermit kingdom? A woman who saw it all play out is telling CNN what she noticed about the moment. Plus, signs of life? The new grainy video suggesting that long-lost Wagner mercenary boss Yevgeny Prigozhin might actually still be alive. This is weeks after his revolt in Russia. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper, and we start today with our law and justice lead in what could be an unprecedented third criminal indictment and second federal criminal indictment against former President Donald Trump for his unprecedented actions. Today, Trump's lawyers and advisors are scrambling to try to figure out what possible evidence and what possible witnesses might be part of special counsel Jack Smith's investigation into efforts to overturn the 2020 election. Now, sources say the letter that Trump received on Sunday informing him that he was a target of the investigation and giving him until tomorrow to appear before the grand jury, that letter laid out a bigger possible case than the Trump team was expecting, given the evidence and testimony of which they were aware. This is just one of the many legal challenges Donald Trump is facing, of course. The special counsel has already charged Trump on the federal level in the classified documents case. In New York, Trump also faces charges in the hush money case and also on the state level. But this time in Georgia, prosecutors are also weighing whether to charge Trump with trying to overturn the election results in Georgia. CNN's Evan Pettis joins me. And Evan, we know the grand jury is scheduled to hear more testimony tomorrow. How soon could we learn about possible charges, a possible indictment and arrest? Well, something could happen tomorrow, Jake, because the grand jury is meeting. They're hearing from a couple of witnesses that we don't expect is going to go very long. Uh, This is uh, something that could be very perfunctory. And frankly, you know, the the, the special counsel's team uh, is not necessarily expecting Trump to actually respond. They don't have to respond. It's an invitation for him to come to the grand jury uh, and or present some evidence. Uh, The Trump team also has not indicated whether they're even going to respond. Uh, The last time that he got a target letter, there was about three weeks that that spanned that time between the time he got the the target letter and the time that we learned of the indictment. Um, This time, you know, obviously we don't expect him to be asking for a meeting with the attorney general. We don't expect a lot of the other things that happened in the Mar-a-Lago case to happen in this one. And we know uh, that the three crimes that, uh, according to the Wall Street Journal and others who've who've, uh, reported on the the contents of the target letter, the three crimes that he is at least being informed of, the three statutes, one of them is a deprivation of rights. The other one is a conspiracy to uh, commit an offense or defraud the United States. That's a, that's a very common uh, charge that we've seen a lot in the last few years. Uh, and then, of course, there's a tampering charge. Uh, that could be, the, 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 the statute that uh, governs that could be related to obstruction of the congressional proceeding, which is, again, a very common charge that we've seen in January 6 cases. Hmm. If the grand jury does vote to indict Trump or others in this case, How will we find out? Probably from Trump himself. We don't expect the special counsel is going to tell us until they don't have to, usually until someone shows up in court. Uh, As we saw last time, 
the defendant is informed that he has been indicted. And so if there is a grand jury indictment, if the grand jury votes uh, tomorrow, they could do so tomorrow afternoon, uh, he would be informed later that afternoon or later in the evening. And then, of course, Donald Trump is free to go on his social media platform and tell the world, as he did last time. As is his want. Yeah, Evan Pettis, thank you so much. Let's bring in CNN's Kristen Holmes, who's live for us in New Jersey, just down the road from where Trump and his allies are gathered. Kristen, tell us about this scramble behind the scenes right now. How caught off guard was Trump's team by the contents of this target letter? I think it wasn't just the context, Jake, contents. It was also the timing. I think that they believe that if he was going to be charged or indicted uh, or even get a target letter, that it was going to be closer to the fall. They knew that things had heated up when they knew that when they learned that Jared Kushner had gone before the grand jury. Uh, but it had seemed like there was a lull, a kind of downturn in events. So the timing one was one of the things that they were caught off guard by. The other was exactly what was in the target letter. These potential charges seem to indicate that these special prosecutors had a much bigger case than they had anticipated. So what they're looking for now and trying to figure out is if there's any evidence that the Jack Smith might have or any extra witnesses that went in uh, that they just didn't know about, that they were unprepared for. And the thing to keep in mind here is that they were watching this very closely. And in fact, so many of the witnesses who came before the January 6th grand jury uh, were represented by lawyers who were paid for by Trump world, which was you know, giving them the opportunity to really have increased insight into what was going on in that investigation. But again, they're now looking for that evidence, trying to see if there is anything there. A lot of conversations going on around this. And while we are hearing from these advisors who say it's business as usual, they are going forward with the campaign. Trump is hosting an event at Bedminster just down the street later tonight. Uh, We also know that there is always concern from allies that as these legal issues mount, that it's going to become more and more complicated for the former president to continue his third bid for the White House. All right, Kristen Holmes, thanks so much. Joining us now, Tom Dupree. He was the former principal deputy assistant attorney general under President George W. Bush. So, Tom, according to the Wall Street Journal, the the target letter cites three specific statutes, uh, deprivation of rights, conspiracy to commit an offense against or defraud the United States, and tampering with a witness. First of all, can you explain the deprivation of rights uh, charge? Sure. That's a federal criminal statute, Jake, that basically uh, penalizes with criminal sanctions anyone who under color of law, which means that basically imbued with official action, deprives someone of their constitutional rights. My best guess here is what the special counsel is getting at. The right that allegedly was, was deprived was the right to vote. That's my best guess as to where the special counsel is going with this, that President Trump used his official authority to deprive Americans of their constitutional right to vote. And what kind of punishment do these charges carry? Are we talking fines? Are we talking jail time? We're potentially talking jail time. The charges carry a a range of penalties that range from, based on what we're hearing, about, you know, three years to potentially 10 or even 20 years. Keep in mind, though, that these are really maximum sentences. And just as a practical matter, it would be exceedingly unlikely for a judge to impose sentences at the maximum end of the range, particularly in a case like this where there are multiple charges. So, yes, they carry the potential for lengthy jail time. But as a practical matter, I don't think we're looking at, you know, decades in prison, even if you were convicted. Is there anything about these possible charges that the Wall Street Journal reports was was in this letter to Donald Trump, any of these possible charges that surprises you? 
The only surprise to me, Jake, was the one you mentioned, the deprivation of rights under color of law. I thought there was a good chance the special counsel would bring a charge under the Insurrection Act or kind of swing for the fences with a seditious conspiracy charge. Doesn't sound like he's going to do that. Uh, It looks like he's taking a different tack, but in a way it may be a more sensible approach. In other words, it's more conservative. Uh, The statute that the special counsel appears poised to charge under is something that is fairly charged often. So judges will be more familiar with it. There's more case law out there than some of the more somewhat exotic charges that we were told the special counsel might be considering. The Trump team is uh, scrambling. They're trying to find out who else might have received these target letters. Who else theoretically do you think could be in legal jeopardy in this case? I think you would have to look at uh, Trump's lawyers and the folks that were participating with him in this alleged scheme, both the the false electors scheme, the scheme to pressure state officials to change the results. My guess is that the evidence of the witnesses here, Jake, are going to be drawn from two camps. One are the state officials that the president and his colleagues were pressuring to change the result. The other group of witnesses, more intriguingly, are going to be Trump's own lawyers and own advisors who were with him as these schemes were developed and executed. And some of them may be charged themselves and others, even if they aren't charged, I think they'll be critical witnesses to any prosecution. I want to get your reaction to an excerpt uh, of, a, of a larger context of what Florida Governor Ron DeSantis told me yesterday uh, when I asked him uh, about this case specifically. Here's part of what he had to say. As president, my job is to restore a single standard of justice to end weaponization of these agencies. We're going to have a new FBI director on day one. Uh, we're going to have big changes at the Department of Justice. Americans across the political spectrum need to have confidence that what is going on is based on the rule of law, not based on what political tribe you're in. Now, you can blame Trump, you can blame Biden, Comey, anyone else. At the end of the day, there is a sizable portion of this country who who believes that the Department of Justice has been politicized. There is some questions about FBI behavior during the Russia investigation, for example. How do you think the Justice Department, of which you were once a member during George W. Bush's administration, how should the Justice Department address this? It's a challenging issue, Jake, and there's no easy answer to it. We see Governor DeSantis and a lot of the other Republican candidates trying to walk a tightrope that's exceedingly thin here, uh, criticizing the president on one hand, but being very moderate in that criticism and focusing their ire on the alleged politicization of the Justice Department. I think if you're an attorney in DOJ, I think all you can do at this point is keep your head down, do your job, and particularly when you're considering charges in a politically charged environment like this, where everyone from either side is going to be hammering you for either going too lenient or going too hard. You just have to be super careful that the charges you do bring are supported by the evidence and that you can, at the end of the day, prove them. Because I think that is going to be the acid test in whether a lot of Americans think these were genuine charges or just made up, is whether or not the special counsel can succeed in proving them before a jury of Donald Trump's peers. All right, Tom Dupree, thank you so much. Appreciate it. Coming up, New reaction to my exclusive interview with Republican presidential candidate Ron DeSantis and his plan to, quote, rip the woke out of the U.S. military. How is his strategy playing in military circles? Then standing ovations on Capitol Hill as the president of Israel comes to town and has a word for U.S. lawmakers who protested his visit. And the alarming report showing just how often doctors get it wrong and the most common diseases that tragically get misdiagnosed. Stay with us. In our politics lead, a high-profile hearing on Capitol Hill today. Two IRS whistleblowers testified before the House Oversight Committee, alleging 
that the Justice Department mishandled and, quote, slow-walked the criminal investigation into the president's son, Hunter Biden. Also in this hearing, the identity of one of those whistleblowers was revealed for the first time. It appeared to me, based on what I experienced, that the U.S. attorney in Delaware in our investigation was constantly hamstrung, limited, and marginalized by DOJ officials, as well as other U.S. attorneys. CNN's Kara Scannell is with us. Kara, who was this previously anonymous IRS whistleblower, and what else did he have to say? Yeah, Jake, so that person that you just saw speaking is Joseph Ziegler. He's a 13-year special agent at the IRS, and he, he's identified for the first time today, even though he'd previously given closed-door testimony with, with some of the Republicans. Now, he and his supervisor, Gary Shapley, who has previously spoken out, both testified today that they say that there was Department of Justice interference in their investigation into Hunter Biden. And one issue that Gary Shapley really had focused on was this October 2022 meeting that he claims he was in with the U.S. attorney for Delaware, David Weiss, who is a Trump appointee. Now, he says at that meeting, Weiss had said that he had no, he had asked for special counsel authority and was denied it, and that he didn't have the final say on charging Hunter Biden, that he might have to partner with the U.S. attorney's office in another jurisdiction. Here's part of that exchange. I watched United States Attorney Weiss tell a room full of senior FBI and IRS senior leaders on October 7th, 2022, that he was not the deciding person on whether char- charges were filed. That was my red line. I had already seen a pattern of preferential treatment and obstruction. It seems to me this October 7th, 2022 meeting, which you've described as a red line, is just a misunderstanding that after the U.S. attorney in D.C. declined to partner on the 14 and 15 charges, Mr. Weiss took a good hard look at those charges himself and ultimately decided not to charge them and therefore not to seek the special attorney status. He may have been right about that. He may have been wrong, as you guys make your case for, but it was his decision. Isn't that right, Mr. Shapley? No, that's not supported by the facts. Now, Weiss has told Congress that he was assured that he had full authority to make that charging decision by the Attorney General Merrick Garland about whether, when, and what to charge Hunter Biden with. Now, Hunter Biden did reach a deal to plead guilty. He will enter that guilty plea next week to two tax misdemeanors. Jake? Speaker McCarthy has said that he is open to bringing impeachment charges against Attorney General Merrick Garland if the whistleblower's claims hold up, right? Yeah, that's right. That is what Speaker McCarthy is saying. He's under pressure from some in the in the further right in his party that they should investigate the Department of Justice further on this. Now, the DOJ had said that they would make Weiss available for testimony before the Hill at an appropriate time. Uh, and Garland is set to appear before the committees in September. Uh, you know, of course, they'll be more free to speak about this once that investigation is wrapped. And that is possible. There will be that resolution next week when Biden enters his guilty plea. Hmm. Kara Snell, thank you so much. Coming up next, the bizarre moment that an American soldier made a run into North Korea. A woman who was there in the same tour group is telling CNN what she saw. People see the military losing its way, not focusing on the mission and focusing on a lot of these other things. Things like DEI and all that stuff, it hasn't worked in other aspects of society. It very well may be on the constitutional chopping block in light of the uh, Supreme Court's decision on, on racial discrimination in higher education. And so it's not a model that I think is going to be successful in the military. DEI, of course, a reference to diversity, equity and inclusion measures that was Republican presidential candidate and Florida Governor Ron DeSantis outlining 
why he unveiled a new plan to eliminate so-called wokeness from the U.S. military. That was during my exclusive interview with him on the campaign trail in South Carolina. The DeSantis plan for the military includes ending all groups and positions in the Pentagon that focus on DEI, diversity, equity, and inclusion, banning transgender service members from being able to serve as they identify, uh, and ending funding for what he calls, quote, activist climate change programs. DeSantis also wants to reinstate all service members who had been removed for refusing the COVID vaccine, and he wants to punish retired generals and admirals who speak out harshly against any sitting president, Congress, or other officials. Joining us now to discuss is the former commanding general for the U.S. Army Europe and 7th Army, retired Lieutenant General Mark Hurtling, who's also a CNN military analyst. General, thanks so much for joining us. So DeSantis says the military is losing its way by focusing on DEI and other what he called woke initiatives. As someone with decades, someone with decades of military experience who still has contacts in the in the Pentagon right now, uh, do you agree? How do you see it? I disagree with that completely, Jake. I'll be honest with you. I I not only have contacts still with forces, but I'm a mentor to several organizations in some in a leadership program. I work with basic trainees and their their commanders. I've done some things with other services, all uh, with an approach to how we can be better as a military. And truthfully, I don't understand what Governor DeSantis is talking about in some of these things. And neither do most of the people in the military. This is not an issue that is for, at the forefront of anyone that I've talked to in the military. So Governor DeSantis um, also wants to punish, uh, prosecute former members of the military, high-ranking officials who engage in harsh politics, uh, you know, really tough criticism of a sitting president, for example. Uh, what do you make of that? You know, what's interesting about it, um, I was talking to somebody at the Pentagon about this proposal, and he said, you know, his mind was open to it, but he said, you know, the first person that, that would be prosecuted, the, the worst defender of all this, is Mike Flynn. Yeah, it, it, it's interesting because uh, I, I, what I've tried to do with CNN, Jake, and you know this, is comment on policies or what the, the political leaders are doing. I've never tried to attack a sitting political leader. I'm not defending myself, but certainly there were times during the previous administration and even sometimes during this administration where I've said a policy is something that is approached in a different way in the military than what a sitting president or uh, a government official is addressing. That could be construed uh, as you know, taking pot shots at a political figure. It's trying to inform the American people about the, the way the military view things. I take the four decades that I've had in the military and say, hey, here's how those who are wearing the cloth of the country feel about this particular action, just like we're doing now. Uh, you know, I, I don't see any wokeness in our military. I've been uh, honored to serve since the start of my service in a very diverse force, uh, serving alongside all races, religions, cultures, men and women. One in five of our military uh, force today of about two million are, are women, and that's about 400,000 members of our force. So some of the things that Governor DeSantis is talking about, I think he's disconnected from what the military actually does and, and what they're made up of. Is there an argument for, um, for transgender service members not being allowed to, to serve as they want to as they identify, you have a trans woman identifying as a woman. Is there an argument uh, in DeSantis's favor for that? 
I, I don't believe so. Uh, but again, I have a different view of this. Uh, our military is an all-volunteer force. It has been that way since the mid-80s. It's a very diverse force. And truthfully, it's the best in the world. People volunteer to serve, men and women. They swear an oath to our Constitution, which outlines our values, our national values, like dignity and respect for all people. Sometime during the history of our military, we failed in that uh, with races, with women, uh, in, in some other areas. So if someone is qualified to serve uh, and they meet the standards, which I, I heard Governor DeSantis sort of dance around yesterday, I personally, as a member of the military, believe they should serve because they contribute a great deal to the diversity, and I'll use that word, and the wokeness, which means you're investigating things uh, within the military. I consider myself woke, Jake. Uh, I will honestly say that not only as a, as a soldier, but as a now citizen of Florida, I'm woke and I still live in Florida because I like to investigate things. I like to analyze things. I like to expand my view uh, of not only how our military works, but how our enemies and our, our allies work as well. Well, how, how would you define woke? Because it, uh, as Governor DeSantis noted yesterday, uh, even many people who rail against wokeness, and he, he, he certainly is against wokeness as he defines it, uh, don't have a definition. How, how would you define it? Well, he, I've never heard him give a definition. I've heard one of his lawyers give a definition. And if the definition his lawyer gave is cr the correct one, then I'm going to say I'm woke. It's someone that looks outside their normal field of view. It's someone that opens their aperture to different viewpoints, to try and analyze things in maybe a unique way, to try and not go along with common cultural bias, but in fact, find out more things uh, about a particular subject. That's what the military does. We're not taught what to think. We are taught how to think, uh, because that's a very valuable attribute when you're, when you're talking about dealing with not only our allies, but with our enemies. We have to dig into uh, the view of different cultures, different people. You know, my last job was as the, as the commander of forces in Europe. And, you know, truthfully, I dealt with 49 other countries and the culture of those nations. And I had to deal with them to build alliances for different uh, things that we were doing, both in Afghanistan and in the continent. Uh, so, you know, I needed to look at other cultures I need to look to see other people's points of view. And to me, that's how I define woke, to try and expand my view of, of what other people think and how they see the world. Retired Lieutenant General Mark Kirtling, thank you so much. Appreciate it. Turning to our world lead, this is a photograph of U.S. Army soldier Travis King wearing a black cap and shirt standing among tourists uh, near the North Korean border. This is shortly before he crossed the demarcation line into the Kim Jong-un-led state on Tuesday. Kisinen's Will Ripley now joins us live from just outside the DMZ. Uh, that's the demilitarized buffer area dividing North and South Korea. Will, we're getting new details about what happened uh, from an eyewitness in the tourist group that, that had been tra traveling with King. Tell us what that eyewitness told you. Yeah, this is really valuable information from Sarah Leslie, a tourist from New Zealand who was on the group on the bus that drove down this unification bridge behind me about five kilometers to the joint security area. And while there is likely security video that exists, closed uh, CCTV video of this, we haven't seen it yet. But she gave us the next best thing, a pretty vivid description of the moment that she actually saw her fellow tourist turn into a defector. Someone ran close to me um, very fast uh, and I thought what is going on um, he 
I, I didn't think anyone who was sane would want to go to North Korea. So I assumed it was some kind of um, stunt to, you know, run to the North Korean border fence and have someone film it or something like that. A couple of seconds after I saw him, that's when the soldiers shouted and started running after him. And so he basically sprinted across the border to the North Korean side, which is very, very desolate right now because they're so afraid of COVID-19. They don't really have the level of security that they do on the South Korean side. So just to give you a sense of the security, I mean, we're still, you know, less than five miles from the from the DMZ. And yet you got the spikes there. You got the barricade. And this is just to get to the bridge that you would then drive over, head down this road directly to the joint security area. And then, of course, uh, beyond a, lat- a little bit further is North Korea, Jay. What is the U.S. doing to try to reach out to any North Korean authorities to bring this soldier back? Whatever they're doing, it's happening behind closed doors using back channel communications because there's no formal uh, line of communication right now between either the United States and North Korea or even South Korea. They have that phone line that has been active but hasn't been answered on the North Korean side for quite some time. Or if it is answered, it's very sporadically. And so uh, what we believe is that likely there are informal conversations happening. We do believe that this American is likely being quarantined at the moment because they are worried about COVID-19. He will likely be questioned by the North Koreans about what happened happened when he was here in South Korea. Of course, we now have learned that he spent almost 50 days in detention for some sort of a fight, some sort of a brawl. He was supposed to be sent back to Texas to be officially separated from the army. That's why he decided to come here and make a run for it, Jake. But his uh, current condition, his current status, still unknown because the North Koreans have not publicized anything at this stage. Will Ripley near the Korean uh, DMZ. Thanks so much. There is new grainy, hard-to-make-out video that might be a sign of life for Wagner boss Yevgeny Prigozhin, head of a mercenary group in Russia. What is heard in the audio is quite telling. Stay with us. In our world lead, proof of life? A grainy, low-lit video published on social media app Telegram earlier today appears to show Russian Wagner chief Yevgeny Prigozhin greeting his mercenary fighters in Belarus. This would make this Prigozhin's first public appearance since leading the failed rebellion against the Kremlin last month. CNN's Nick Payton Walsh has more now on the Wagner chief's alleged emergence and a rare plea to Russians from Britain's top spy. It is grainy, dark, and doesn't show us much of use, but it does claim to be Wagner rebellion leader Yevgeny Prigozhin, finally in public and alive with his fighters in Belarus after 25 days of him vanishing from view. It emerged, perhaps by coincidence, a few hours after this man, the secretive head of Britain's MI6 intelligence agency, told CNN in a rare public appearance that he thought Prigozhin was, quote, floating about, providing the first confirmation from the West and he's alive. Britain's top spy seemed shocked at how a weak Putin was forced into accepting the Belarusian president's humiliating deal that weekend. He really didn't fight back against Prigozhin. He cut a deal to save his skin using the good officers of the, uh, uh, of the leader of, uh, of, of Belarus. So uh, look, I, even I can't see inside uh, Putin's um, head. It was a week of Putin's disappearance, then displays of grandeur after wildly flip-flopping over Prigozhin, all of which the MI6 chief admitted left him struggling to read. If you look at Putin's behaviours on that day, uh, Prigozhin started off, I think, as a traitor at breakfast, 
he had been pardoned by supper, and then a few days later he was invited for tea. So there are some things, Anne, that even the chief of MI6 finds it a little bit difficult to try and interpret in terms of who's in and who's out. But the head of MI6 used here, Prague, the last European capital before the invasion of Ukraine, to see Russian tanks roll through it to launch a wider appeal that's really a reflection of how weak they think Putin is right now. He appealed to disaffected members of the Russian elite, angry at the invasion of Ukraine, to bring their secrets to MI6. Effectively, a rare public appeal for them to spy for the West. I invite them to do what others have already done this past 18 months and join hands with us. Our door is always open. We will handle their offers of help with the discretion and professionalism for which my service is famed. Their secrets will always be safe with us. And together, we will work to bring the bloodshed to an end. Chaos so startling, its full impact is yet unknown. Now, I think the real takeaway, though, from listening to the head of MI6 is that, you know, when you listen to stories in public from the Kremlin, you're always left imagining, is there something else happening behind closed doors? Am I being fed an incorrect narrative that the Russians are so fond of distributing? Really, it seems, though, with all Western intelligence's capabilities, remember, they got the invasion. They predicted that pretty accurately. They think that what we saw is what we got and that essentially we can believe what we saw on the surface. To some degree, that is terrifying because we've seen a surface of utter confusion, betrayal and madness in Moscow over the past weeks. Jake? All right, Nick Payton Walsh, thank you so much. Also in our world lead, a celebration on Capitol Hill as Israeli President Isaac Herzog, nicknamed Bougie in Israel, and members of most, of most members of Congress came together to honor the modern state of Israel's 75th year of existence. But as CNN's Hadass Gold reports for us now, it was impossible to ignore concerns about the health of Israel's democracy and its future. A historic speech by the Israeli President Isaac Herzog on Wednesday during a critical and tense juncture in Israeli-U.S. relations. President Joe Biden having called some members of Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu's government the most extremist in Israeli history and calling on Netanyahu to pump the brakes on the massive judicial overhaul legislation that will completely change the Israeli Supreme Court. The Israeli president acknowledging the recent fissures. I am well aware of the imperfections of Israeli democracy and I'm conscious of the questions posed by our greatest of friends. The momentous debate in Israel is painful and deeply unnerving because it highlights the cracks in the hole. Receiving several standing ovations, including while extolling the very institution Netanyahu is trying to overhaul. It's strong Supreme Court and independent judiciary. Some empty seats, though, as progressive Democrats boycotted the address, including Congresswoman Pramila Jayapal, who recently caused controversy after calling Israel a racist state, later walking those remarks back, but still a no-show. Should the speaker not have invited him? I think this is not a good time for, for that to happen. From all sides of the At the Oval Office on Tuesday with President Biden, warm words contrasted with a stark split screen back in Israel. As protests raged again over the judicial overhaul, Netanyahu has vowed to push through. Shortly after meeting with Herzog, Biden granted New York Times columnist Thomas Friedman an interview, whose own interpretation of Biden's feelings making major waves in Israel. 
Biden is basically pleading with Netanyahu and his supporters to understand if we are not seen to share that democratic value, it will be difficult to sustain the special relationship that Israel and America have enjoyed for the last 75 years for another 75 years. Herzog, who has been trying to mediate a consensus on judicial reform, leading into history and the Bible in his address to push Congress to keep that relationship going strong. Mr. Speaker, dear friends, the sacred bond we share is unique in scope and quality because it is based on values that reach across generations, across administrations, across governments and coalitions carrying us through times of turmoil and elation. Hopeful words for a country facing an uncertain future. Now, as for when Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu himself will actually be invited to meet with President Biden, that's still sort of up in the air. The two leaders did speak on Monday, but there's a bit of a discrepancy about how much of an invitation was really extended. The Israelis saying, yeah, Biden invited Netanyahu to come meet. The White House being a bit more circumspect, saying that the two agreed to meet sometime in the future. There is some debate whether that will be actually in Washington or potentially somewhere else, for example, at the U.N. General Assembly in September. Jake. Mm. All right, Hadass Gold in Jerusalem for us. Thank you so much. Coming up, a staggering look at just how often doctors get it wrong when they diagnose patients. What to ask the next time you're in the hospital? That's next. A terrifying number in our health lead. A new study from Johns Hopkins at Medicine uh, estimates that 795,000 people here in the United States die or become permanently disabled every year because a disease or medical condition was misdiagnosed. Viewers know that my daughter, Alice, who's now great, nearly died in 2021 from a medical problem that was entirely preventable, a misdiagnosed perforated appendix. She went into sepsis almost because of that. Thankfully, she's stronger than ever now. But there are thousands more who share similar stories or far, far worse CNN's Dr. Sanjay Gupta joins us now. And Sanjay, Dr. Newman Toker, who led the study, is one of the folks who did an after-action report looking into why Alice's case went so wrong. What did he find in this study? Well, he found these these big numbers, first of all. And he's talking about misdiagnosis, which could mean the wrong diagnosis, or it could mean missed diagnosis, missed the diagnosis, which is sort of what happened with Alice. They just missed the diagnosis. The numbers are big. I think this is what got everyone's attention. 370,000 people who die annually because of these missed or missed diagnoses, 424,000 who have these disabilities. I I do want to be clear, just so we're not frightening people, overall, going to the hospital, going to a clinic visit, less than 0.1% chance of the average person having some sort of severe outcome as a result of these misdiagnoses. But there were some categories, Jake, which were the biggest culprits for misdiagnosis. Sepsis, which you just mentioned Alice almost went into, stroke, pneumonia, blood clots, lung cancer. These were the ones that were most likely to account for those severe outcomes and where they focused their attention in the study. So Alice, the problem that that Alice had is that that doctors and nurses seem to be under the impression that appendicitis presents in one uniform way, and it doesn't. There are many, many different ways it could. So that was why her her case went misdiagnosed, in addition to them not listening to Alice or uh, my wife or myself. But generally speaking, why does this seem to happen so often? Yes, I mean, I think what you pointed out with Alice is is one of the, the primary culprits. They expect right lower belly pain. 
someone doesn't have that, they say, well, this doesn't seem like appendicitis, which seemed to be what happened with Alice. As you know, I looked at all of her medical uh, charts. But also, like, take stroke. People think, okay, you got weakness, you got difficulty speaking, that's stroke. But what if someone comes in with dizziness or headache or fatigue, less, less, less sort of clear? People might miss that. Uh, cardiac stuff, heart stuff, you know, classic left-sided chest pain, that's what people typically think of. But what if it's more generalized chest pain or weakness or shortness of breath? I think the point they make in the study is you've got you to be looking out for things other than the most common presentations, if you will, of some of these very common diseases or common problems. So what kind of questions should patients or people who love the patients be asking if they're worried the diagnosis might be wrong? Well, first of all, I think patients do want to bring a very clear picture of what's happening. Make sure you write down the history of what has happened, but then ask these questions. If you get a diagnosis, ask the question, what could be causing my problems? But also, what else could it be? Very important follow-up question you should ask. And, you know, if there's test results, when will those test results come back? And what decisions will be made based on those test results? But I think it's very important for patients to have that really clear history of their symptoms, clear and concise, when they go see their, their doctor in the first place. I would add, if you want to advocate for yourself, you can, you can ask, you can demand imaging, and you can ask or demand a consult with the surgical That's team right. or some other team. Know your rights as a patient. Dr. Sanjay Gupta, thanks as always. Trump's former White House Deputy Press Secretary, plus a former Chief Counsel for Biden in his VP's days, they're both going to join me with their take on the special counsel's target letter sent to Donald Trump and the potential charges. Stay with us. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. This hour, country music star Jason Aldean is now defending his music video after it was pulled from country music television amidst harsh criticism. Plus, the Department of Justice is looking into accusations that Texas officials on the border were ordered to push migrants back into the Rio Grande River. This plus emails describing horrible conditions, such as a woman stuck in razor wire while having a miscarriage. CNN is along the border in Texas. But leading this hour, our Law and Justice Lead. The grand jury in the special counsel's January 6th probe is set to meet tomorrow after Donald Trump told the world that he received a letter from special counsel Jack Smith identifying him as a target of the investigation. Sources say the letter laid out three possible statutes that Trump could have violated and gave the former president until tomorrow to appear before the grand jury if he wants. Trump's lawyers and aides have spent the day trying to figure out just what evidence and witnesses could be a part of the special counsel's investigation witnesses and evidence that they were not aware of. We're going to start our coverage with CNN's Paula Reid. Paula, how are Donald Trump's attorneys responding to this target letter? Well, Jake, they're quite surprised. If you've spoken to any of Trump's lawyers over the past year, they would have told you that they absolutely did not expect that he would be charged in the January 6th investigation. Now, initially, they would also tell you they didn't expect he would be charged in the Mar-a-Lago documents case. But that thinking, of course, changed once they learned there was a recording of their client. So the charges, though, that are listed in the target letter, according to reports, uh, contemplate a case that is much broader than they would have even anticipated. So now they're trying to figure out, does the special counsel have some additional witnesses or some other evidence that they're not aware of? And Jake, I've got to tell you, the Trump team, they're pretty looped into what's going on with this investigation. Remember, the political action committee aligned with Trump underwrites the defense counsel for a lot of key witnesses. And that's a big part of how they keep tabs on what's going on, which makes it all the more surprising that they were so caught off guard. If uh, Smith brings charges related to January 6th, do we have a sense of where the trial will take, take place. The way he brought the documents case in Florida, 
do we think these charges will be in D.C. or, or a battleground state such as Michigan or Arizona, maybe? So speaking to a source familiar with this investigation just a short time ago, and I was told that, yes, this case would very much likely be brought here in D.C. That's where the grand jury has been gathering evidence. This is the seat of a lot of this alleged conduct. Now, there is, of course, though, some confusion because the Mar-a-Lago grand jury was here in D.C., but then eventually they transferred it to a grand jury down in Florida. But the key difference there is, of course, Florida is where a lot of the alleged conduct occurred, though also some of the alleged conduct also occurred in New Jersey. It's up to prosecutors. But I was in court yesterday, Jake, with defense attorneys for the former president and special counsel prosecutors, and the defense attorneys made it clear that they intend to make that move from D.C. to Florida in the Mar-a-Lago case an issue going forward. All right, Paula Reed, thank you so much. Donald Trump is, of course, a candidate for president, so now we go to the campaign trail where the other Republican primary candidates are, are struggling to respond to Trump's possible third indictment. Here are some of the responses so far, starting with a quick excerpt from my interview with Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, who I asked about this yesterday. I hope he doesn't get charged. I don't think it'll be good for the country. I do not want to see my opponents eliminated because of the actions of a corrupt federal administrative police state. Uh, we're all involved in a primary. Uh, I trust the American people to judge that that day. He used to try to find a way to weaponize its powers. The rest of this primary election is going to be, in reference to Trump, is going to be about lawsuits. We can't keep dealing with this drama. CNN's Jeff Zeleny joins us now. Jeff, Trump's rivals are, are running for president against him, yet m most of them don't seem to want to be critical of him uh, about these charges. Jake, they are walking a very fine line, and now it's almost become an unspoken part of the party platform to say the Department of Justice is weaponized, to uh, essentially repeat what the former president has been saying. But there are some nuanced differences that we've seen at this uh, point from the uh, indictment in March and earlier in June. In your interview with the Florida governor yesterday, he talked repeatedly about looking toward the future. He said he must look ahead toward the future. And he said he does not believe it's good to have a presidential campaign in January focused on the past, what happened on January uh, uh, 6th of 2021. So there are some nuanced differences, but by and large, the Republican rivals, with the exception of Chris Christie and Mike Pence and sometimes Nikki Haley, they are staying away from any criticism of the former president. And Jake, the reason is simple, because he still controls the uh, base of the party's support here. And it's a very perilous thing to say to a primary electorate to criticize Donald Trump. You're out there on the campaign trail, Jeff. What are you hearing from voters uh, about the criminal charges Trump is facing or might be facing in the future. I mean, Jake, we see a divided Republican Party. Uh, at least half the party, perhaps more than that, would like to move on, and they are concerned about these criminal charges. Half the party, the Trump base, is simply not concerned about that. But... Uh, but a few data points came. One came in a new poll yesterday from the University of New Hampshire. Only 37 percent of Republican voters there support the former president. So that gives you a sense that six in 10 Republicans are willing to uh, entertain someone else or look for another candidate. But as for these charges, there is a sense of exhaustion and and a Trump fatigue. But there is also a worry among some Republicans who want to uh, go a different direction that there could be indictment fatigue. There are so many different uh, court cases in different venues from New York to Florida to possibly Washington to possibly Georgia. Will that also uh, cause some exhaustion? So uh, Republican voters are split just like their party is.
take. All right, Jeff Zeleny, thanks so much. Joining us down to discuss former White House Deputy Press Secretary during the Trump administration, Sarah Matthews, and Victoria Nurse, who served as chief counsel for then-Vice President Joe Biden. Sarah, so you were one of the witnesses who testified before the House January 6th Select Committee. So you're aware of Trump's actions uh, around the Capitol uh, attack. Are you at all surprised to hear that the special counsel's case against Trump seems to be larger uh, involving more evidence and more witnesses uh, than Trump's attorneys expected? I don't think that's surprising at all. I think that they had access to different material that the congressional committee could not get access to, particularly witnesses. Obviously, we know that the vice president went before the grand jury in this case, and um, that wasn't something that happened with the January 6th committee. And so I think that um, they have reason to be worried, the Trump team, because I think that they will have even more evidence. And obviously, the evidence that was uncovered in the January 6th committee hearings was really shocking, particularly Cassidy Hutchinson, my former colleague's testimony. So, Victoria, according to the multiple outlets, including the Wall Street Journal, the target letter that Trump received on Sunday from Jack Smith says he could be charged with deprivation of rights, which might be, people are speculating, the taking away the right to vote from other people. The right people. to vote, yeah. Yeah. Um, conspiracy to commit an offense against the United States, which that's obvious, and tampering uh, with a witness. Um, what do these charges tell you about the case that the special counsel might have? Well, let me just clarify one thing on tampering. That's the title of the statute, but it's really an obstruction statute that they're referring to. I right. Think. Their, invest- he, that, their allegation being that Trump tried to stop their investigation in yes, some ways. Yes, yeah. in some ways. So I think these are pretty expected. Um, the only twist, uh, given the January 6th committee, they're expected. The only twist is really the deprivation of rights, the conspiracy to deprive one of the voting rights. And that makes perfect sense. It's an old statute, 18 U.S.C. 242. And it's been here since Reconstruction, and it's often associated with rights not to be discriminated against. But voting rights, it's one of our most fundamental rights. Um, Sarah, I want to read you this reporting from The New York Times. Quote, subpoenas issued by Mr. Smith, that's a special counsel, suggest that he has been scrutinizing Mr. Trump's political action committee, Save America PAC. It raised as much as $250 million, telling donors the money was needed to fight election fraud, even as Mr. Trump had been told repeatedly that there was no evidence to back up those claims of election fraud. The House January 6th committee had also suggested that Mr. Trump and his associates had defrauded his own supporters. It described how after the election they appealed to donors as many as 25 times a day to help fight the results in court and contribute to a defense fund, but no such fund existed. And they used the money for other purposes, including spending more than $200,000 at Trump hotel properties. I mean, Do you think that Donald Trump repeatedly takes advantage of his base? Yeah, I think he preys on his supporters. He lies to them. And obviously that results in these people giving them um, money, thinking that, you know, they're helping save democracy, all because they think that the election was stolen. Yet Trump has been told repeatedly there is no evidence of fraud, despite his claims that there was substantial fraud. And he was told repeatedly that he lost, but he is just unwilling to accept that fact. And so it is really disgusting to see him take advantage of his base in that way. And obviously that ultimately led to a deadly riot on our nation's capital. Those folks would not have been there that day unless Donald Trump told them that um, Mike Pence had an authority to overturn the election, which Trump was told Mike Pence did not have that authority. Yet those people showed up because they were told that. And so they thought they were helping save our country. 
And so it is really sad and just frankly disgusting for him and anyone who is still associated with him. Would that theoretically be breaking the law, telling people that you're going to, telling supporters we're going to use this money to fight election fraud, even though you know there's no election fraud? It's Um, fraud. I mean, that's the essence of this. I mean, the fake elector scheme is fraud. And there's another aspect to this. You know, you have to prove if you're going to obstruct justice that he acted with corruption. So there's a problem. Some people say, did he benefit from it? So that evidence will take away an important legal argument that was raised in some of the other January 6th um, indictments. So in the, in the target letter, Special Counsel Smith told Trump he had four days to appear before the grand jury if he wanted to present mm-hmm. his case. This is kind of the last step before an indictment comes down, usually. Uh, that's tomorrow. If you were advising Trump, would you tell him to go before the grand jury? No. Why not? Well, because... Um, Given what we've seen of his loquaciousness and tendency to take himself into a deeper hole as a lawyer, you want to protect your client. And so I would suggest that he stay away. Most people, most lawyers are saying that in the press. Um, Oftentimes defendants don't appear before the grand jury because it's only a probable cause. It's not beyond a reasonable doubt. Um, So he can make all sorts of legal arguments about the indictment moving forward. He can challenge the evidence. He doesn't really need to show up. Sarah, you um, quit the Trump administration on January 6th, right? That was the day that you resigned. But I just want to ask you, and maybe this is an unfair question, did you think that Donald Trump preyed on his supporters and took advantage of his supporters before that? Or is that something that, and you were in denial about it and you looked back on it? Just just explain that to me. No, um, I knew that on election night that Donald Trump had lost. And I think that folks were still holding out hope thinking that things would turn around, but obviously his litigation failed time and time again. I wanted to stay on with the Trump administration um, till the very end because I had made my boss that promise that I would, but ultimately it was a slow burn for me. I was disgusted by his lies about the election, and that um, obviously ended up with the deadly um, riot that happened on January 6th at the Capitol. And so looking back, I have some regrets about not speaking out sooner, but that's why I think it's so important that there are folks like myself, Alyssa Farrah Griffin, Cassidy Hutchinson, et cetera, who are willing to call out these lies. Absolutely. Sarah Matthews and Victoria Nurse, thanks to both. You appreciate it. Thank you. Ordered to push women and children back into the Rio Grande River. That's the claim from a medic assigned to the border in Texas. And now the Department of Justice is looking at the allegations then. Investigators in the Long Island serial killer case are now looking at properties that the suspect owns in other states. In our national lead, the Justice Department is now assessing the situation along the Texas-Mexico border as two unnamed trooper medics there are sounding the alarm that the Lone Star State is, quote, stepping over a line into the inhumane, unquote. Migrants are literally stepping over lines made of razor wire at the border, Those trooper medics say this has caused injuries, claiming medics were ordered to not give water to migrants and to push people back into the Rio Grande River instead of allowing them onto the land. CNN's Priscilla Alvarez joins us now. Priscilla, what is the Justice Department saying about these reports? Jake, they're calling them troubling, and they're saying that they're working with the Department of Homeland Security and other federal agencies to assess the situation on the ground. I have been talking to sources for months about internal discussions between DHS and DOJ over at least the last year about what was happening along the border. And this is the first public acknowledgement from the Justice Department that they are now looking into it. So it has certainly escalated within the administration. And it comes, of course, amid the reports that you touched on. These were two medics with the 
Texas Department of Public Safety, who shared concerns about what they were seeing. And let me just read through some of those. It was a four-year-old who was passed out in 100-degree heat, a man with a laceration on his leg from razor wiring, a 15-year-old with a broken leg, and a 19-year-old who was trapped in razor wire after having a miscarriage. I have been on the border multiple times. People do get hurt. There is death. But they are tying this directly to the Texas governor's actions. Now, he has put out a statement saying that no orders were given for troops to send people back to Mexico or not to give them water. But the White House is sounding the alarm and talking about it today. Take a listen. This is what we see over and over and over again uh, from this Texas governor, from Governor Abbott. And it is uh, it is uh, all we're asking for, all we as a country and what we should hold near and dear is the basic human decency, basic human decency. And we are just not seeing this from this governor. Now, Jake, we should note that this is not an investigation. This is an assessment into the situation, and that could be the first step into an investigation. But clearly, again, concern within the administration about where this is going, especially after the Texas governor sent migrants to Democratic-led cities without warning, then put these buoys in the water, which is having the potential drowning risk for migrants, and now these reports about sending troops or sending migrants back to Mexico. All right, Priscilla Alvarez, thank you so much. Appreciate it. CNN's Rosa Flores is in Eagle Pass, Texas, along the U.S.-Mexican border, where these incidents were reported. Rosa, what are migrants up against there as they try to cross into the U.S.? Jake, let me show you around. The state of Texas has deployed several layers of border barrier. The first one that you see here is this chain link fence. Then there's one layer of concertina wire and a second layer of concertina wire. And the latest effort is actually floating on the river. It's those buoys that are anchored to the bottom of the waterway. Now, this is a popular crossing area for migrants because the water is very shallow. And despite the buoys being deployed, we've seen migrants cross the river. And the first layer of border barrier that they actually encounter is the concertina wire. Now, we've seen migrants try to place clothing or other objects on the wire to protect themselves. But despite that, top brass at Texas DPS acknowledged that the number of injuries has increased. Now, Governor Greg Abbott and top leadership issuing a statement saying in part, quote, no orders or directions have been given under Operation Lone Star that would compromise the lives of those attempting to cross the border illegally. Now, the owner of this property says the U.S. Customs and Border protection leased the property from them. And if you look behind me, you'll see that there are bathrooms, washing stations, and also these tents. And the owner of this property says that this was done in part to provide water and also first aid to migrants. And Jake, if you're wondering why is this empty? Well, that's the other thing. All of this is happening in the backdrop of the fact that the number of migrants crossing the border has dropped significantly. Jake. All right. Rosa Flores near the U.S.-Mexican border in Eagle Pass, Texas. For Thank you so much. Uh, with us now to discuss, Republican Congressman Chip Roy of Texas, who represents parts of Austin. Uh, Congressman, good to see you. So these incidents come as Texas Governor Greg Abbott in recent weeks has stepped up efforts to, to physically prevent um, migrants from illegally entering the country. Uh, is Texas, do you think, endangering the lives of people who are coming to the United States to seek asylum? Well, good afternoon, Jake. Good to be on. And, uh, you know, I just want to 
congratulate the Department of Homeland Security from, for finally actually acknowledging that there's something going on at our southern border and paying attention to Texas, because they sure as hell been MIA for the entirety of my tenure in Congress. And so now they're zeroing in and trying to focus on what Texas is doing in the wake of the complete absence and, in fact, the culpability of the Biden administration as being a part of the human migration chain that we saw unfold and that we're seeing depicted in the sound of freedom, the sex trafficking trade, the danger that uh, is, you know, posed to migrants for the 856 dead migrants last year along the Rio Grande and in South Texas and in Arizona, the 53 who cooked in a tractor trailer in San Antonio last August in the district where I represent, the thousands being told in the sex trafficking trade. You don't have to believe the sound of freedom. You can believe federal judge Reed O'Connor who issued an order, an order saying, you know what? We're going to upward depart because we need to actually have stiffer penalties because there was an illegal migrant in Maryland who was being threatened by the cartels because they were going to rape his daughter if he didn't give him $21,000 after he'd already paid them money. That is the humanity that we're talking about on the southern border. The DPS is giving out water. DPS saved lives today. They resuscitated people today. Today they saved a family and a, and a, and a group of migrants in the water drowning. Most of the barriers being put out are being used to push people down the river to a safer place to cross. Water's being given out. No, not to everybody who crosses, but it's 115 degrees and it's not a way station. We have an obligation to try to stop the flow because it's harming us in Texas and the migrants who seek to come here. So, I, I mean, I hear what you're saying about the larger issue of border insecurity and how that creates a, an opportunity for cartels to do their evil uh, and when it comes to human trafficking and also uh, creating opportunities uh, that create the false sense that this is a safe journey uh, for these migrants. Um, the complaints, though, that we're hearing here are have to do with the fact from these medics um, in a seven hour period, medics encountered multiple razor wire injuries, including this woman that was trapped on a razor wire and was having a miscarriage. Now, the trooper medic who reported this said that the wire it's okay for it to be there, but it needs to be manned, it needs to be patrolled constantly, and it needs to be lit at night so people can see it. What do you think of those proposals made from this trooper medic? Well, what I would say is, is that the state of Texas has appropriated $10 billion, with a B, over the last four years to deal with the crisis that this administration has completely abandoned. And when I hear, I can't remember which reporter it was, talked about the lower numbers, well, how about focus on the One app? Because right now I'm getting a whole bunch of information in my hearings and oversight that we've had almost half a million people process through the One app. So all we're doing is diverting how people are coming to, to Texas. But we still had 150,000 apprehensions last month, according to the data I got yesterday, which is off the charts high. So welcome to the party. Again, we're having to deal with the mess. Now, gosh. I see all of these ranchers in South Texas and people breaking down, the people that are the county attorneys that find dead bodies. They have to go get mobile morgues to put bodies in it. And they're just breaking down crusty old 75-year-old ranchers who find a dead body on their ranch. We're trying to stop that. We're trying to send a message to the world. You're endangering yourselves, subjecting yourselves to cartels, but this administration is actually culpable in making it happen. Then they want to come after Texas because we're trying to protect our own communities and the migrants. I understand. I don't like razor wire cuts. I don't want anybody getting dehydrated, but it's 115 degrees in Texas. You're going to get dehydrated. These guys are giving them water. They're doing what they can with limited resources because DHS is MIA. Mayorkas knows it. He's abandoned his post, and the president is all too willing to let him do it. 
Mayorkas's uh, response quite often is along the lines that Alejandro Mayorkas, the secretary of the Department of Homeland Security, um, for the viewers out there, uh, his response is usually uh, that he's doing what he can, that they sent thousands of more troops, and that this problem needs to be solved with a big, comprehensive immigration reform bill, that the immigration system is broken, but that no president or DHS secretary can solve it. It needs to be Congress changing the laws uh, and, and doing more. Um, what is your response to that? Well, first of all, the secretary came before the Judiciary Committee last year, and he testified to me that, yes, he had operational control of the border, and I had the statute sitting behind me under the Secure Fence Act. He then later, earlier this year, six months later, he goes to the Senate and he testified, oh, if you think I'm going to follow the Secure Fence Act and have operational control of the border, no one can do that. So which is it? The fact is he's playing games. He wants to look at Congress and say, we've got to do something. He's got all the laws that he needs to get operational control of the border. But we passed H.R. 2 in April, which would give extraordinary additional power if the president would work with us. And frankly, a lot of that's in that bill is stuff that Barack Obama asked for, stuff that Jay Johnson asked for in 2016, because they were actually trying to stop the flow. Jay Johnson said a thousand a week was a crisis. And you know, Jake, we are so far past a thousand a week. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And that's the difference in that administration and this administration. Republican Congressman Chip Roy of Texas, thanks so much. Uh, always good to have you on the show. The Biden hey, God, campaign. God bless, Jake. God bless to you as well, sir. The Biden campaign just released a new ad that features, of all people, Republican firebrand Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene of Georgia. You got to see this. In our 2024 lead, a new snapshot of Republican voters likely to participate in the first-in-the-nation New Hampshire primary. In New Hampshire, right now, according to this poll, Donald Trump holds a 14-point lead over Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. That's 37% to 23%. This is a new poll from the University of New Hampshire Survey Center. South Carolina Senator Tim Scott is in third place. He has 8%, followed by former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie and North Dakota Governor Doug Burgum at 6% each. Vivek Ramaswamy and former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley are both at 5%, with all others at 1% or below. Uh, let's discuss. So, Eva, Trump has a double-digit lead, but, but DeSantis in the hunt is in the hunt there, and it's a lot smaller, that this lead in New Hampshire, that we see in national polls. And the state-by-states are far more important than the national poll. This also suggests that Two-thirds of the people in New Hampshire, Republicans in New Hampshire, don't want Trump. This is still very much a competitive contest. We talk about this all the time. But this is why the ground game is so significant. This is why these candidates, the whole game is meeting as many voters in these early states as possible. I just looked up uh, the amount of people that turned out in 2020 in New Hampshire in the Republican primary. is about 150,000 people. In Iowa, in the Republican caucus in 2020, that's about 32,000 people. So when you have the electorate that small in these early states... I mean, you know, these candidates can really just, you know, spend as much time as possible there, meet as many people there, and there could be surprises. And and what do you make of this? Two-thirds not in the Trump column as of right now in New Hampshire among Republicans. It's a poll. Jake, I don't, maybe I'm just an old song. I don't think anything's changed. I think this is Trump's nomination until somebody takes it from him. It was a great interview with DeSantis this week. But even him, I don't see any of these candidates trying to beat Donald Trump. 
he's going to be indicted. And, and look at none of them are attacking him for that. Well, Chris Christie is. And Chris Christie doesn't count because he really doesn't have a chance to win. I'm talking about the candidates who have a shot. None of them are attacking Trump. They're all waiting. It's weird. They're all waiting for something to happen to Trump. Yeah, See, I think it's a mistake to dismiss them too early I in the too. process. But yeah. that's, that's just To dismiss my, who? Chris Christie? Or? All of these candidates. Yeah. All of these candidates. Um, uh, Francesca's uh, Tim Scott in third place right. in this poll. Uh, Super PAC supporting him just announced a $40 million ad campaign. That's the largest booked by any candidate so far. Um, if one perceives DeSantis as kind of like being stuck, uh, and I'm not saying I do, but do you think there's an opening here for Tim Scott? Well, he certainly has a lot of resources to be able to continue to compete. And that's not not everyone can say the same exact thing. You're seeing some of those candidates like Asa Hutchinson, who's down in this poll. You know, they had him hovering at almost zero percent. He didn't bring in um, nearly anywhere close to the same kind of haul that some of these other candidates did. When you're looking at what Tim Scott has cash on hand, uh, he again, he would be able to compete in all three of these states and and continue into those Super Tuesday states. One thing about the Trump numbers in that poll, though, is that the people who are with him, Three quarters of them say that they are with him. He's their guy. They're sticking with him. And so that, I think, is significant. Also, though, he has dropped by five points since April in that poll, whereas you see Ron DeSantis's numbers staying essentially even. So it's not Ron DeSantis who's losing support in New Hampshire. It's Donald Trump. Interesting. Can I just say one thing on this? The, the reason why this is still anyone's race, I do think it's Donald Trump's race to lose, but it's because Iowa and New Hampshire rarely like to do the same thing in a primary. So even if Donald Trump wins in the Iowa primary, Iowa primary or caucus, it does make it hard for folks to get momentum. But New Hampshire is known to kind of push back and say, but we want, and with this poll, six out of 10 New Hampshire and saying that they don't want to actually support Donald Trump, I do think it gives opportunity for folks if they can stay in the race that long. I heard a lot of conservatives uh, praising uh, DeSantis for stepping outside of the conservative media bubble and doing the CNN uh, interview. Uh, And one of the things that's interesting about media bubbles, and look, there are liberal ones, there are conservative ones, et cetera, et cetera, is that sometimes you might say things and you're miscommunicating. And uh, let me explain. Marjorie Taylor Greene uh, gave a speech the other day, the conservative firebrand, MAGA extraordinaire from Georgia. And in her speech, she talked about how Joe Biden was trying to finish what LBJ did, finish what FDR did. Now, in her bubble, that automatically means horrible, bad FDR, worst guy in the world. But to the rest of the world, FDR is considered a great president. Um, so, Biden did something interesting. His campaign did something interesting. Um, and they turned it into an ad. Take a look. Joe Biden had the largest public investment in social infrastructure and environmental programs that is actually finishing what FDR started, that LBJ expanded on, and Joe Biden is attempting to complete programs to address education medical care, urban problems, rural poverty, transportation, Medicare, Medicaid, labor unions. And he still is working on it. I like how she said urban problems, (laughs) urban (laughs) problems. By whatever do you mean by that? Uh, Pretty brilliant. Brilliant. And it is telling that that is someone who is running in a general election He is saying, if you think that the Republican Party is too extreme, your own folks, you know, they misused her words a little bit, but it was brilliant. Come over. We are doing things that the average American finds that around 
the economy, around so many issues that people find important. I thought it was well done. And I think everyone should give a tip, a hat tip to the Biden campaign. She could. I mean, she could have been more clear if she was trying to (laughs) if she was trying to speak outside the bubble. If she was trying to say, like, we don't believe in big government like FDR did. Like, but but she's speaking so much, preaching so much to the choir uh, that she just. And at that event, Jake, yeah. she was purely speaking to the Republican Party base at that event because they ate it up. But it served it served right into Joe Biden oh, and his completely. campaign strategy right now, yeah. which partly is to cut things that Republicans are saying, turn them into ads, put it on air and, and put money behind it. I, I don't I think that one's running online right now, but that is broadly what their strategy is while he continues to focus on the things that he wants to focus on as president and the business of being president. Yeah, that's trolling more than it is an, an actual ad buy, at least at this point. But at this point, at this point. But that is largely what their their strategy is right now is to let Republicans say what they're going to say in this race. I mean, it illustrates that we live in two different Americas, <laughs> basically. And the same could be said of the left. You know, you could play back something on that someone says on the left and it'll get, you know, worse applause. And then you could play it for right wing audience and they might be horrified. So, uh, yeah, it just just illustrates we're living in. in oh, it does. I mean, I could totally imagine uh, some Democratic congressman talking about how important it is for Fauci and Christopher Ray and like all these people that right wingers consider to be bad guys, uh, you know, to, to be given power and respected in this and that. And. The right wing would do the same thing. They would do the same thing. It was a brilliant commercial. And again, this is Biden's secret sauce. He needs to stay above all of this and speak to most Americans. Quick question. I do wonder I did wonder what you thought when I asked uh, Governor DeSantis about uh, the possible indictment. And he said, quote, uh, that he hopes it isn't. This is not the quote. I hope it doesn't happen. He said something like that, quote, I don't think it will be good for the country. What did you think of that? Well, you said the question, Jake, was perfect because you said, what if he finds Smith evidence found of criminality, evidence of criminality. Right. Boom. And he just wouldn't even touch that. Yeah. I which mean, I thought was really disappointing. But, and I asked, but it makes sense politically. I asked it twice. I evidence of criminality. You said that word twice. <laughs> all right. Thanks. Thanks for paying attention. Uh, thanks to one and all for being here. Why investigators in the Long Island serial killer case are now looking at other murders in Nevada. Stay with us. In our law and justice lead, the investigation into the Gilgo Beach serial killer suspect is now expanding to South Carolina and to Las Vegas. Rex Hewerman was arrested just last week, as you recall, in New York for allegedly killing three women and stuffing their bodies along the Long Island shore. Their remains, along with those of a fourth woman, were found in 2010. Hewerman is currently charged with just three of those murders. CNN's Gene Casares is following the story for us. Gene, what connections does this alleged serial killer have in South Carolina and Las Vegas? Well, they are looking for geographical connections to the defendant, Rex Hewerman. And let's start with South Carolina, because the tax records are showing that he owns four large parcels of land in a rural part of South Carolina, Chester County. And those parcels of land are actually separated with gravel roads between them. But right next to those parcels, his own brother lives in South Carolina. So neighbors are saying that late last week that law enforcement just swooped into the area, including the FBI. And a law enforcement source tells CNN that they actually were extremely interested in a Chevy Avalanche 
which they towed out of the area. And they are combing that for evidence right now. So they believe there is a connection between the defendant and that Chevy Avalanche that could be very important to the case. Now, we did receive a statement from law enforcement in South Carolina, and we want to show everybody part of that. The Chester County Sheriff's Office has and will continue to work closely with the Federal Bureau of Investigation and Suffolk County law enforcement authorities during this very important and arduous investigation. They also told us that they were looking at this property, investigating even before the arrests were made, as per request by the county here in New York and the FBI. Now to Las Vegas, tax records show there that Hewerman and his wife purchased two condo townhouse properties between 2003 and 2005. There's one right there. It's right next to the strip area. And tax records show that one of them they have sold, but the other one they do or do not have. It's not sure. But the law enforcement in Clark County is telling us they are looking at their cold cases. They are looking at unsolved homicides. And Jake, if we look at the modus operandi here, it involves obviously sex workers. And so that is, I think, a particular area that Las Vegas will look into as they comb those unsolved crimes. Gene, what kind of evidence are authorities sifting through right now? Well, the primary crime scenes, of course, are right here in New York, and they are continuing and will for quite a while the search for uh, any evidence in his home, his office. We understand there are a couple of uh, storage units they're looking at, but here's what we know. We know that they found a doll in the primary home, and it wasn't in one of the children's bedrooms. It was in another area. They looked at that as a red flag. They took that. And then we also understand they thought there were about 92 guns registered in New York. They found 200 to 300 guns. They were in a locked vault in the basement behind a solid door. And so they also uh, took those, although obviously these remains to cause of death is, is hard to determine. All right, Gene Casares, thank you so much. Coming up in our pop culture lead, why country music television pulled Jason Aldean's new music video and what the country singer is saying about the decision. Our pop culture lead, country music television today, pulled the plug on a controversial music video from star Jason Aldean. The song is called Try That in a Small Town, and critics say that the lyrics evoke vigilantism, even racism. Here's what the song says might happen if you cuss out a cop or stomp on the flag in a small town. Try that in a small town See how far you make it down the road Around here we take care of our own You cross that line It won't take long for you to find out I recommend you don't Try that in a small town Now, needless to say, Jason Aldean rejects all of the accusations coming his way from critics. CNN's Chloe Malas joins us now. Chloe, um, it is not just the lyrics of the song causing controversy, though. Um, Some viewers took issue with the video. Jake, there's a lot of outrage over the music video. So some viewers are noticing that scenes in this music video, part of which we just saw, were filmed in front of the Maury County Courthouse. And this is in Columbia, Tennessee. Now, this courthouse is the site of where a very infamous lynching took place in 1927 uh, of a black man named Henry Choate. It also served as the backdrop for the Columbia race riot in 1946. Um, As we also saw, the video shows... uh, 
you know, uh, police brutality protests and shots from surveillance cameras showing robberies. Um, And many people are also pointing out that, Jake, remember in 2017, Jason Aldean, of all people to be promoting gun violence, performed at a concert at a music festival called Route 91. And it was the deadliest mass shooting in American history when 58 people died. Right. So Cheryl Crow and others are coming out and saying, Jason, what are you thinking? What are you doing? Yeah, I mean, he would argue that he's not promoting gun violence. He's promoting gun rights and, and the right of self-defense. What, what is he specifically saying about the reaction to his song? Because this has become a real controversy. So he took to Twitter. He released a very lengthy statement. Part of it reads that there is not a single lyric in the song that references race or points to it. And there isn't a single video clip that isn't real news footage. And while I can try and respect others to have their own interpretation of a song with music, this one goes too far. The song refers to the feeling of a community that I had growing up, where we took care of our neighbors, regardless of differences of background or belief. Now, Jason Aldean grew up in Macon, Georgia, and people like Cheryl Crow are saying, first of all, Jason, you didn't grow up in a small town. Macon's not that small. I grew up in a small town, and this music video and your song is not representative of small town beliefs. Um, Now, Jason Aldean did not write this song, but we've reached out to the songwriters and I've reached out to Jason Aldean and his music label for further comment. Um, but that is all he is saying right now. But you know, people are boycotting the song, but he's also getting support from others, Jake, who are saying that they support uh, Jason and they're going to continue to listen to his music. Yeah. My guess is that you'll see a real rally around the flag uh, result uh, from his fan-, fan base and from conservatives on this. Chloe Malas, thank you so much. Let's check in with CNN's uh, Wolf Blitzer for a look at what might be coming up in the Situation Room. Wolf, you're going to be talking to a 2024 presidential candidate. That's right, Jake. Uh, The former New Jersey governor, Chris Christie, uh, he'll join me live right here in the Situation Room. We'll get his take on a potential third indictment for the GOP frontrunner, Donald Trump. And as you know, Jake, uh, Christie has unique insight as a former federal prosecutor and former Trump ally turned vocal critic of the former president. And Wolf, uh, I'm going to be stopping by the Situation Room uh, myself in a little bit. I know you are. We're going to get your reaction to what Chris Christie has to say. But I'm also looking forward, Jake, to discussing your new thriller, All the Demons Are Here. Here it is. I got a copy of the book. Uh, We're going to see you in the next hour. We got lots to discuss. Back to you, Jake. Thanks, Wolf. Appreciate it. We'll see you in a few minutes. But first, on the lead, the results from Netflix's password sharing crackdown are out. That's next. In our tech lead today, that Netflix crackdown on password sharing apparently worked. The streaming giant claims to have added nearly 6 million paid subscribers, bringing its total number of subscribers from around the world to more than 238 million. Instead of allowing password sharing, Netflix calls its new policy paid sharing, forcing users to pay more if they share their password outside their household. So far, the streaming service is enforcing its paid sharing In more than 100 countries, Netflix reported more than $8 billion in revenue last quarter alone. That's 3% more than the same period last year. You can follow me on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, Blue Sky if you have an invite, threads, the TikTok at Jake Tapper. Tweet the show at The Lead CNN. If you ever miss an episode of the show, you can listen to The Lead once you get your podcasts. All two hours, just sitting there like like a delicious fruit cup. Don't forget... All the demons are here, available now. Our coverage continues now with Wolf Blitzer in the Situation Room. 
Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.